We love to explain quantum physics and the mysteries of the universe, but the mysteries of finance, not so much. Intuit helps you demystify your finances through products from Intuit like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Understanding standard deductions or interest rates can be very complicated and tricky with big potential consequences. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionized over 20 million bedtimes with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cozy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Daniel, do people still write us with questions? You know, the inbox is overflowing like usual. Oh, overflowing? Don't you answer them? I do, but every time I send a response, it just seems to generate more questions. But you're not giving them a good answer. (laughs) Maybe, but even when they say, ooh, now I get it, they always come back with, hmm, but that makes me wonder about something else. Maybe you should try asking them a question. If you stop them, that might give them uh, something to think about. Mm, a question like, would you fund my research? Oh, nobody will write you back then. <laughs> the question to end all questions. Literally. Jorge Cartunas and the creator of PhD Comics. Hi, I'm Daniel. I'm a particle physicist and a professor at UC Irvine, and I refuse to limit my chuckles. Are people trying to limit your chuckles? Are you under the oppressive rule of an anti-chuckler? Well, we did have one person who wrote in and complained about how much time I spend chuckling on the podcast. And then we talked about it on a recent episode. And then I got an avalanche of emails from people who say, never stop chuckling. All right, there you go. You got some support from the internet to keep chuckling. Somebody literally wrote to me this morning and said, chuckle to your heart's content, sir. So here I am chuckling away. It seems like a a bit of an overreaction over one comment from the internet. (laughs) 
it suddenly turned into a social <laughs> cause here. Free Daniel's chuckles. Now I'm self-conscious about it. I don't know if I'm chuckling on purpose or chuckling to chuckle or what's going on. I got to get out of my own head. Oh man, so they are being limited. They are shackled now. I think maybe it's like a quantum thing. We just shouldn't look at it so much and just let it be itself. Let it be both annoying and endearing <laughs> at the same time. Stop trying to measure the chuckle and let it be uncertain. But welcome to our podcast, Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, a production of iHeartRadio. In which we do try to measure the universe, or at least our understanding of it. Our goal is to use our minds to try to nail down everything that's happening out there in the universe, from the tiniest little vibrating strings that might make up the very fabric of reality, all the way up to cosmic black holes that are swallowing the centers of galaxies. We think it's a worthwhile way to spend your time to try to understand the universe and we exult in the joy of our curiosity and the chuckles that we find along the way. Yeah, because it is a wonderful universe. It's huge. It's amazing. It's fascinating. It gives us a lot to think about. And as you said, sometimes a lot to chuckle about. It's kind of a funny universe. (laughs) Funny smelling, funny looking or funny weird. It's got all the funnies. It's quantum in that way as well. (laughs) It's both funny haha and funny huh? At the same time, the superposition of funnies. It is pretty funny weird, that's for sure. So many things we have discovered about the universe that make us go, what? That can't possibly be true. And then we do the experiment and the universe says, oh yeah, that's exactly what's going on. And it makes us reformulate the way we think about the whole universe. For me, those are the best moments in science when the universe tells us that we've been thinking about things the wrong way the whole time. And science is how we explore the universe and find out how things work and why they are the way they are. And the way we do that is with questions, right? Science is all based on questions. Science is basically just people asking questions. You might imagine that science is like some big building with columns where information gets turned out on like a ticker tape or something. But it's just a bunch of people being curious about the universe. Every time you spend like 19 seconds reading about the life cycle of some guinea pig, it's because some person has decided to devote their life to studying that guinea pig and how it spends its time. Wait, what do you mean every time I spend 19 seconds reading about a guinea pig? How often do you spend 19 <laughs> seconds reading about guinea pigs? Do I need to answer that question? <laughs> That's a question I don't want an answer yeah. to. I'm not sure we want to go there. It's just a hypothetical example. I want people to appreciate the time and devotion that goes into every single scientific bit of knowledge we have. Each one comes from some individual needing to know the answer to that question. So science is in the end just a bunch of people asking questions and deciding they got to know the answer. And then Daniel deciding he's only going to spend 19 seconds (laughs) reading about their life's work. Well, there is this amazing asymmetry, right? In the same way you can spend decades doing research and somebody can just like skim it on their phone while they're in the bathroom and they go, oh, that's cool. And then they move on with their lives. Right. But think about the millions of people that could be reading this on their phones. If you multiply, I guess, those 19 seconds of bathroom reading, you get, you know, (laughs) millions of seconds of bathroom reading. That's my goal as a scientist is just to get maximal number of seconds of bathroom reading. (laughs) (laughs) Aim high or aim low, you know. Just aim somewhere. Who cares about Nobel Prizes or citation counts or fancy awards? Seconds of bathroom phone scrolling. That's my new metric. All right. Do you think academia should be based on that? (laughs) Just forget about, uh, you know, impact factors and H indices and Nobel Prizes. 
have a new award called the uh, the toilies. <laughs> toilies. I do think it's important that we reach everybody out there. It's not important that they're on their toilet while we reach them, but I do think it's vital that science communicates outside of just academia and the rest of us scientists to everybody out there who's curious about the world and who's helping to pay for our studies and pay our salaries. This knowledge and this curiosity belongs to everyone, which is why we do these episodes where we talk about questions from not just from cutting edge scientists, but from people out there like you. That's right, because science affects everybody. And in fact, everybody has questions about the universe. Maybe not necessarily about guinea pigs, or I'm sure people don't think they have questions about guinea pigs, but maybe they do. And maybe they do have an ultimately question about how life on Earth is here, or why we're here, or why is the Earth here, or what would it be like to live in other planets? Are you saying there are people out there who don't have questions about guinea pigs? Are you serious? How many people do you know? <laughs> have you met people outside of your uh, little bubble there? It's just so easy for your brain to like generate guinea pig questions. For example, how long would a guinea pig last on the surface of the moon? or on Ganymede, or in outer space. Now you're sounding like a supervillain. <laughs> I'm not suggesting we do these experiments, but I would like to know the answer. But people do have questions, and sometimes we answer them here on the podcast. That's right. If you have a question about something that doesn't make sense to you, or maybe you heard us talk about something on the podcast, and it doesn't quite click in your brain, or you are just lying on your back, staring up at the stars and wondering what's going on at the heart of them, write to us to questions at danielandjorge.com. We answer every single email and tweet, and we will answer your question as well. Wait, Daniel, you don't answer all of my my email. <laughs> I answer all the emails from listeners. Absolutely. Do you listen to our podcast? I do listen to the podcast. <laughs> Maybe I just need to frame it in the form of a physics question. There you go. But people do send questions to us and we answer them here. And so today we have three great questions from listeners about exciting topics like what's it like to live in a moon of Jupiter? A question about black holes and whether they have a surface and also a question about math which I guess maybe it's not as exciting as the first two. What if it's about guinea pig math? Would that make you more or less interested? Does that mean like a trial math for the universe? <laughs> there you go. Yeah. No, it is an exciting question. Also, it's about the very nature of reality and whether reality is based on math. And so let's tackle this first question first. And this one comes from Billy. Hey, guys, uh, I'm wondering what life would be like for humans on the moon of a gas giant. So suppose we find a Jupiter-like system within what we currently understand as the habitable zone of a star. And this system is a moon that could sustain human life. What would the day-night cycle look like with a planet or other moons blocking the sun? Uh, what kind of seasons would you go through? Uh, would the passing of more or less massive moons disrupt gravity in interesting ways? Could one of those moons support smaller satellites like Phobos and Deimos? Um, thanks, and I look forward to hearing your answer. Awesome. Thank you, Billy. That's a great question. Like, what's it like? Because we often hear about uh, how the moons of other planets are maybe habitable and they're maybe like the size of, of Earth and sometimes they even have water. And so the question is, like, what would it be like to live in a moon of another planet? It's a great question to put yourself on the surface of one of those moons and think about like, what would the sky look like? How long would the day be? What would you see in the sky? How many eclipses would there be? What would the seasons be like? It's a really fun question, especially, for example, if you're writing a science fiction novel that's set on one of those planets, as I suspect Billy might be. Boy, you're really suspicious here. You think <laughs> Billy just has a, an ulterior motive here? <laughs> it can't just be asking out of sheer curiosity. Absolutely. Maybe he is. Maybe he isn't. But after we give our answer, I think he'll be well set up to write that novel. And I'm looking forward to reading it. Mm, the him and, and tens of thousands of people. Better get typing fast, Billy. <laughs> 
But it is an interesting question. What would it be like to live, for example, in a moon like Europa, which is a moon of Jupiter here in our solar system, which has water and is, is sort of in the habitable zone, right? Yeah, and these moons are huge. Remember that Jupiter is much, much bigger than Earth. And so a moon of Jupiter can be basically the size of a planet. Yeah, and Europa in particular has liquid water in it, right? Europa has an icy crust and we think oceans of liquid water underneath. We're sending probes up there to sample those oceans because sometimes they crack and shoot geysers of crystallized water out into space. And we're going to try to send something through one of those plumes and see like, hmm, is there organic material in there? Maybe little frozen microbes? It's going to be pretty exciting. Yeah, and I think people have also talked about Titan, right? Which is another moon in here in our solar system that might be livable. Yeah, a lot of these moons are pretty big and pretty rocky and might have liquid under the surface. So they might like naturally have their own life. It's a great way to ask the question like, how likely is life to evolve? Because it's like an independent way to sample whether life emerges from similar conditions to what we have on Earth. And there's another question, which is like, what would it be like for us if we tried to colonize these places and actually established bases there, what would your daily life be like on those surfaces? Yeah, and I guess that's the question Billy had, because I guess if you're on a moon, then you're orbiting another planet. And then that planet is presumably orbiting the sun of its solar system. And so the question is, would that make your days and nights super wonky and unpredictable? Or would they make them maybe more predictable? Or would you even have seasons, things like seasons? Yeah, it wouldn't make it less predictable, but it would make it very, very different from our experience. Earth, for example, currently just orbits the sun and we have a day-night cycle because of the Earth's spin. If you're a moon around Jupiter, for example, then what determines whether you're seeing the sun or not is not your spin, but how long it takes you to go around Jupiter. Wait, what do you mean? Why is it determined by your orbit around Jupiter? Wouldn't it also depend on your inherent spin of the moon? There's a couple of reasons. One reason is Jupiter is huge. And so it's going to eclipse the sun pretty often, right? Half the time you're going to have Jupiter between you and the sun. And so because Jupiter is so big in your sky, you can have like hours long eclipses every day. Uh, okay, maybe um, let's get down to specifics. Like if I was in a moon of Jupiter, uh, what should I expect to see in terms of day and night? How often would I see the sun? One key thing to understand is that these moons tend to be tidally locked, meaning that one side of them faces Jupiter and one side of them doesn't. Just the way that like our moon faces the Earth. So there's the near side of the moon and the far side of the moon. We always see the same side of the moon from Earth. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're we're sort of going around the Earth at the same rate that the Earth is spinning. Like the moon has a certain period around the Earth, but the Earth is also spinning. So it gets kind of complicated, right? That's right. The moon sees different parts of the Earth, right? But the Earth always sees the same side of the moon. But now put yourself on an Earth-sized moon around Jupiter. It takes like 85 hours for Europa, for example, to go around Jupiter. So now your day-night cycle is determined by how long it takes you to go around Jupiter. Mm, okay, so like if Jupiter was standing still, Europa would take 85 hours to go around, to orbit around Jupiter. That's what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. And so at any given time, if it's uh, on the side of Jupiter that's facing the sun, then the outward facing side of the moon of Jupiter would see the sun. But the inner part of this, uh, the, the part of the moon that's facing Jupiter would not see the sun. Yeah. So you have like two important hemispheres. You have the far side of Europa, the one that's facing away from Jupiter, and the inner side, the one that's facing towards Jupiter. On the far side, the outer side, that part never sees Jupiter. Jupiter never appears in the sky 
on the far side of Europa. But you do have 85 hour long day night cycles. So you have like 42 hours of sunlight and then 42 hours of darkness. And that's a big difference from what we have here, right? We have 24 hour long periods, which are determined by the spin of the Earth. On Europa, the day night cycle is determined by how long it takes to go around Jupiter. And a longer day night cycle means higher temperatures during the day and colder temperatures at night. Mm, yeah, you got to pack a heavier sweater, I guess. But I, I guess if you're on the outside of the outward facing side of the moon, then life would be pretty regular, right? It'd be sort of like here, except just longer days. Yeah, it would be here, just longer days. And it depends on how close in you orbit. For example, Ganymede, its period is like 170 hours. And Io, its period is 42 hours. So it depends how close you are to the gas giant. You could have a much longer or a shorter day-night cycle. It depends on how long it takes to go around the gas giant instead of how fast you spin. And all of those moons are tidally locked to Jupiter? Like they're all always facing the same way towards Jupiter? Yeah, they are. Okay, so like half of the world or half of Europa just sees a regular day-night cycle. And I guess also regular seasons, right? Because then the seasons kind of depend on whether Jupiter is farther or closer to the sun. Yeah, the seasons depend on the tilt of the planet, right? And so Earth's axis of rotation is tilted relative to the sun's, for example. So part of the year, the northern hemisphere is closer to the sun and the other part of the year, the southern hemisphere is closer to the sun. If you have no tilt, then you don't have seasons. Every part of the year is the same. If you're on a moon of a planet that's tidally locked to that planet, then the moon's tilt is connected to the planet's tilt. In the case of Jupiter, for example, the tilt is actually pretty small. It's only three degrees, much less than Earth's tilt. So on Jupiter, the seasons are more mild. The winter and summer are not as dramatic. So if you're on the exomoon of a planet that isn't tilted very much, then you're not going to have seasons. You could also imagine being on the moon of a planet that it tilted more. Mm, I see. So the seasons, for example, in Europe, at least in our case, where there isn't a lot of tilt, the seasons would be pretty mild or like not a lot of variations in the seasons like we have here on Earth. But maybe the, you're saying the day and night cycle would be pretty dramatic, like the days would be super hot and the nights would be super cold. Mm -hmm. And if you're on the inside surface of the moon, the one that's always facing Jupiter, then things are pretty dramatic because Jupiter would be huge in your sky. If, for example, you're on Europa, then Jupiter would be like 20 times as big in the sky as our moon is here on Earth. It would be a huge thing. You'd see it all the time. It'd be like a giant thing blocking your, your view, right? You see Jupiter like a huge thing in the sky. Yeah. And you would see eclipses basically every day, right? Because Jupiter would get between you and the sun every single day. And every time you get that eclipse, it will, it will look like night, right? Because Jupiter casts such a huge shadow. Yeah, so you have this day-night cycle, but then on the inside surface of the moon, you also have a daily eclipse, which is like a mini night in the middle of your day. So like everybody takes a siesta. Sounds great. <laughs> but let's move to Europa. And if you think about it also, how much you see of Jupiter depends on its relationship to the sun. The same way that like our moon either looks full in the sky if the sun is shining straight on it, or it can look dark if the sun is shining on the other side of it. The same thing will happen to Jupiter. You could have like a crescent Jupiter or a full Jupiter right? It'd be pretty dramatic. And also probably Jupiter would be spinning. So you would see different sides of it as well. Like sometimes you'd see the red eye, sometimes you wouldn't. It'd be pretty beautiful actually, because Jupiter is a gorgeous planet. It's got so much texture on it. It's frankly a lot better looking than our moon. Well, it depends on your taste, I guess. <laughs> but I guess we're saying that if you're on the side of the moon in Jupiter that's facing Jupiter, then you would basically like your day would be split into two mini days, kind of. Like you would see the sunrise above your horizon, but then it would dip behind Jupiter. 
then when it come out of Jupiter, and then it will sunset <laughs> back to the horizon on the other side, right? And the sunsets could be pretty dramatic as well, right? You have like light bending around Jupiter. You have like sun setting behind Jupiter, which would be pretty dramatic because then the sun is being filtered through the Jovian atmosphere, which would be pretty cool. And at night, you might have a really dramatic auroras, like the northern lights and the southern lights. Oh, cool. So you would have two sunsets and, and two sunrises every day. Yeah, exactly. You'd have one over the horizon of your own moon and one over the horizon of Jupiter. All right. Now, th this sort of depends a lot on, like you said, the tilt. But it is maybe a pretty typical example if you have like a big gas giant and with moons, right? Like if that was somewhere other in another solar system, the like uh, the probability is that the moon will be tidally locked to the the giant planet, right? Yeah, it depends a little bit on how close it is. The closer a moon gets to the planet, the stronger this effect is. You can also have more complex tidal relationships. Like, for example, Mercury is technically tidally locked to the sun, but the same side of Mercury doesn't face the sun all the time. It's a complicated 3-2 spin orbit resonance where it does like three flips every two times around the sun. So you can get even more complex relationships. But we do expect in other solar systems to see gas giants near the habitable zone. Like in our solar system, we have Jupiter and Saturn kind of far out compared to the Earth. But in many other solar systems we see in telescopes, we see what we call hot Jupiters, big gas giants much closer to the sun than our gas giants. So it's possible they have moons in the habitable zone. Yeah, and those moons would see a pretty regular day and night cycle, which might be an ingredient for life, right? Like if things were totally chaotic if your days and nights were totally unpredictable maybe life wouldn't be able to thrive in a place like that yeah it'd be really amazing to see life develop in other cycles like what would it be like to have a big night and a mini night and how would that affect the development of life and reproductive cycles it'd be really amazing to see those experiments play out in reality yeah everyone would be like the spanish you're like what you don't take siestas everybody takes siestas even the plants even the guinea pigs or i guess exo guinea pigs on that planet would they still be called guinea pigs? Well, I think that answers the question for Billy. Life on an exomoon of a gas giant in another solar system would be most likely pretty regular. Now let's get to our next question. And this one is about black holes and whether they have a surface. So we'll get to that question. But first, let's take a quick break. Mother's Day is coming and mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. 
We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are answering listener questions, and we just answered one about what it's like to live on a moon of a gas giant in another solar system. This one has asked kind of a similar question almost, and it comes from Bobby. Hello, Daniel and Jorge. My name is Bobby from Arizona. This question comes to you as kind of a two-part. Could a black hole have a surface in that if you gathered enough materials, let's say iron, at a thousand or billions of times the mass of the sun, and it became a black hole, would you be able to fall in that hole hypothetically and stand on the surface of that solid iron? Additionally, could this same black hole potentially gather enough materials around it to spark fusion again within the black hole? All right. A little bit of a mind-bending question here is, can a black hole have a surface inside of its event horizon? And could you maybe like spark a sun inside of the hole? Man, I love that image of a sun hidden inside a black hole. 
like fusion, burning away furiously, pumping out photons, which are forever trapped by the black hole. So thank you, Bobby, for this question. What do you think Bobby was thinking? I think Bobby, like many people, is wondering what's going on inside a black hole. When stuff falls inside a black hole, what happens to it? What does it do? What is the structure of matter in there? What kind of weird stuff does it form? I think that's sort of the heart of his question. And that's a question that many people have, including black hole experts and cosmologists and astronomers. Basically, everybody wants to know what's going on inside a black hole. All right. Well, then maybe let's dig into this and let's be maybe clear because black holes do kind of have a surface to them, right? They have an edge to them, which is kind of like the, where the black starts, basically. There's definitely like an edge to a black hole in the sense that we can say there's a point of no return. If you get closer to the black hole than this, then all paths lead towards the center. There's no escape. Right? And that's what we call the event horizon. It's like a threshold, but it's not a surface in the sense that it's like a physical boundary. If you're falling into the black hole, you don't necessarily even notice when you pass the event horizon. There's no like gatekeeper there or force field or anything. You can't even necessarily know whether you're past the event horizon. The only way to know if you're past the event horizon is to do the calculations and see if there's any path out for any particle, even into the infinite future. So there is this distance from the center of the black hole we call the event horizon. That doesn't necessarily mean that that is a surface. It's a surface only in sort of a mathematical sense. Right. It's, it's kind of like you say, a boundary, but it is a three-dimensional boundary, which kind of makes it a sphere technically. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that one, that's the mathematical event horizon. But that's not necessarily what we see when we look at pictures of a black hole. That's not necessarily like the black that we see in those pictures, right? That one's uh, bigger than this event horizon. But that, is, that does sort of look like a surface. Yeah, you're used to looking at something and seeing it the way it is because your mind is used to reconstructing objects in front of you, assuming that light travels in straight lines, which is why your mind gets confused if you're looking at like a bendy mirror or through some lenses, things look distorted, right? In the same way, space itself is distorted, even outside the black hole, and light doesn't travel in straight lines, it gets all twisted and bent. So what you see when you look at a black hole is not the actual physical extent of the black hole, but an image of the black hole that's been distorted by these weird paths that light follows. So specifically, you see a black circle that's actually larger than the event horizon and includes not just the part of the event horizon that's facing you, but also the part from behind. Like photons that leave the event horizon from behind the black hole get bent around by the gravity and then back towards your eye. So you can see the entire surface of the black hole from any side of it. Right. So that sort of counts as a surface, right? You just said you used the word surface in the sense that it, uh, maybe you wouldn't be able to tell as you're falling in, but maybe somebody from the outside would see you sort of fall into that surface, right? Or they would see a surface relative to somebody falling in. Yeah, it's definitely a boundary. It's a surface mathematically. It's not a surface in the sense that you could like stand on it. There's nothing there to support you. You can't like walk around on the event horizon. Right. So I think Bobby's question now here is whether or not a black hole has a surface in the sense of like having a physical hard surface on which you can actually like stand or into which you would crash if you fell into a black hole. Because I imagine maybe he's thinking like a regular hole here on the ground on Earth. It's a hole and you would fall in, but eventually you would hit something. And if there's a whole bunch of stuff in the hole, you would, or like, like a trash or something, you would eventually fall into the hole, but then you would hit the pile of trash. 
And so I think maybe Bobby's wondering, like, you know, the black holes have all this stuff inside of them. If you fell into the black hole, wouldn't you eventually hit this stuff? Yeah, and it's a great question. The way to think about this is in terms of the forces. So gravity is very powerful when things get very massive and things get very close. But it's not all powerful, right? Like, think about the huge ball of iron in the center of the Earth. Why isn't that a black hole? It's not a black hole because iron has internal structure, has enough internal structure to resist the gravitational collapse. Like the atoms pushing against each other that form this ball of iron, they resist gravity. But inside a black hole, gravity is much, much more powerful. It's more powerful than the structure of iron. It's more powerful than any sort of bond that we are aware of. We don't think there's anything that can overcome the power of gravity once you are inside the black hole. So if you take a big blob of iron, as he said, a huge mass of iron like millions of times the mass of the sun and collapse it to a black hole once all that iron is inside the black hole it doesn't have the strength to resist the gravitational collapse and that's why general relativity predicts a singularity it says that things just keep compressing and compressing and compressing until you get a dot of infinite density Mm, I think you're saying like here on Earth, there's a bunch of stuff at its center, but it's not collapsing because other forces are keeping uh, gravity from collapsing further. You know, like the electromagnetic force between all of the electrons and the protons and the quarks inside of the atoms in Earth's core. But in a black hole, like we've sort of done something different. We've like accumulated so much stuff that gravity is so powerful, it squishes even the electromagnetic force. Like it just squeezes everything down theoretically into an infinite point. Exactly. You can have a certain mass of iron and it can hold itself up. But if you make it too massive, gravity gets too strong and then it collapses. And that's how black holes form, right? Black holes form from stars that made too much heavy stuff at their core. So they're no longer able to resist gravity's collapse. And then it turns into a black hole. So all that iron, according to general relativity, forms a singularity, a dot at the center of the black hole where all of that mass has accumulated. And so unless you can walk around on an infinitesimal point, according to general relativity, there's not really a surface inside the black hole. And there's no chemistry going on and no fusion or no anything else. Right. So are you saying at the center of a black hole, there's no surface, there's no pile of trash or iron. There's just an infinite dot. But what about the stuff getting to the dot? Isn't that stuff uh, accumulated maybe? Yeah, that's a good point. It takes a finite amount of time once you pass the event horizon to reach the singularity. And so if the black hole is actively feeding, then you have a singularity surrounded by stuff that's still falling in. You know, sort of like a toilet bowl of stuff swirling around it. And remember, this is according to general relativity. Einstein's equations predict this runaway effect that leads to a collapse, that leads to a point. Because in Einstein's theory, space is smooth and continuous. It can be chopped up into infinitely small slices. And you can also know where everything is at all times. These assumptions are in total contradiction to what we know about the universe being quantum mechanical. And so physicists don't take this prediction of singularity seriously. We don't see it as like an actual prediction of what's happening inside is sort of like an indication that the theory itself is breaking down because it predicts something kind of crazy. Right. Physicists think that maybe general relativity is wrong and you wouldn't get a singularity at the center of a black hole. You would maybe get like a quantum blob. Yeah, we think that something will prevent the singularity from happening because you can't confine particles to an infinitely small space without giving them effectively infinite energy because of the quantum uncertainty principle. And so there's a minimum quantum fuzz to the universe always. So when you try to compress matter really, really far, there must be some quantum mechanical way that they resist becoming a singularity. You know, I think of them as sort of like layers of defense. 
matter has many ways to protect itself from collapsing. First, there's like the chemical internal structure, like the earth. Or if you have a star, then it's fusion, which is pushing out and pumping out energy to prevent collapse. If you like a neutron star, then there's like the neutron degeneracy. We don't know what's going on inside a black hole. There might be something else quantum mechanical that matter can do to resist being compressed into a singularity. To know how that works, we'd have to have a theory of quantum gravity, which we just don't have. Though there's lots of fun ideas about what might be going on inside. Yeah. And so inside of a black hole, there might not actually be a hole, I think is what you're saying. Or it would still be a hole. There just wouldn't be a, a pinpoint singularity in the middle. I mean, it might be that the stuff inside of the hole is still holding together or, you know, making a pile due to some other quantum force. Yeah. And it's very unlikely that if you throw a bunch of iron into a black hole, that it's going to stay iron. It's going to turn into some other completely different state of matter because the iron molecules are not going to be able to survive that intense experience. They're going to get shredded apart to their basic constituents. Maybe even the protons will get pulled apart into their quarks. Maybe those quarks will get pulled apart into whatever they are made out of. We just don't know. From the outside, it still just looks like a black hole. You can't see beyond the event horizon. So gravitationally speaking, a singularity or a quantum blob with the same mass all acts the same from the outside. So as you say, it still looks like a hole. Yeah, but to Bobby's question then, if there is a quantum fuzzball in the middle, that means that uh, inside of the black hole, there would be a surface, right? Like a physical surface that you could maybe stand on if you could somehow um, survive <laughs> or even think inside of a black hole, right? Yeah, perhaps. It depends a lot on that theory of quantum gravity. So what's going on inside it? You know, we talked in the podcast once about the dark star theory, that black holes are not actually black holes. They're just very slowly collapsing stars that will reach a minimum point from quantum mechanics and then bounce back out and turn into like white holes eventually. And so that's also not the kind of thing you would necessarily be able to walk around on a collapsing star unless you have like really good boots. Yeah, maybe you have dark star shoes. <laughs> but to technically, it would have a surface, right? It would answer Bobby's question and the answer would be yes. There would be like a physical blob inside of a black hole that has a surface that you could stand on or throw things at and they would splat. Yeah, stand on in the sense that you could like be there on top of it. I don't know if it would absorb you or pull you apart or melt you instantly. So I certainly wouldn't recommend it to anybody out there who's considering it. Sounds like we would maybe want to test it first, you know, by throwing like, say, uh, <laughs> an animal at it. What, what kind of animal do people usually do experiments with first? Mm, is it bananas? Mm, hamsters? I can't remember. Or bananas animals? <laughs> On other planets, maybe exobananas might be in the animal category. Oh my goodness. I'll bring up all kinds of ethical <laughs> issues for me there. Did I tell you, by the way, what my kids dressed up as for Halloween? No. Well, my son has become very long and lean, and so he dressed up as a banana. All right. He's aspiring <laughs> to the, the greatest fruit on the planet. So we had a banana in the family. But I'm not throwing him into any black holes, no matter what he wears on Halloween. Yeah, I might get a little slippery. But I think that answers Bobby's question. Uh, could a black hole have a surface? And the answer is yes. I mean, it has kind of a, a threshold surface. It has a visual surface, which is the, the part that looks black. And it may, if general relativity is wrong, and we think it most probably is, it does have maybe a physical surface inside of the hole. 
It certainly might. It could be a dark star. It could be a fuzzball made of strings. It could be something else entirely we haven't yet imagined. If we could see inside a black hole, we could know what happens when you compress matter in these extreme circumstances. And we could learn something about the fundamental nature of reality. All right. Well, thank you, Bobby, for that question. And now let's get to our last question. This one's about the very nature of the universe and whether or not it all adds up. So we'll tackle that question. But first, let's take another quick break. Mother's Day is coming, and mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. 
But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're answering listener questions. And our last question is about the nature of reality. It comes from Matthew. Hello, Daniel and Jorge. I have a question about the math of the universe. What is it? Trigonometry? Algebra? Calculus? The math of space exploration. I was thinking about the James Webb Space Telescope out there in Lagrange 2. How the heck? That was math, right? Like somebody was like, oh, look, here's some math. We can put this thing there and it'll stay put. Because it's like circling the sun with the earth and the moon, but then it's like doing little loop-de-loops in addition to the circling the sun. And another thing, how do they get it to stay focused on something a billion trillion miles away when it's doing all that motion? Are they constantly firing thrusters? Anyways, tell me about the math of the universe. Like from the olden days to now, what the heck? Trigonometry, what is it? Like that scene in Apollo 13 where they all check their math. And, oh my gosh, I got to know more. All right. Thank you, Matthew, for that awesome question. Also, I think uh, I think that's my reaction to a lot of these things about the universe. What the heck? <laughs> I, I can't I can't anymore. It is amazing how the universe works and how it seems to be so describable by math. It really is incredible. Yeah. And so that's Matthew's question is he's asking, what is the math of the universe? Is it trigonometry, algebra, calculus? Long division. It is really interesting to wonder which parts of math describe the universe, because you can imagine that we could invent a whole bunch of math that doesn't describe the universe, that isn't relevant necessarily. Wait, what do you mean? Like you can have math that says one plus one equals two, but, but then maybe you could have a universe where one plus one doesn't equal two? No, I mean that you can invent kinds of math that don't have to reflect the physical universe. For example, you can invent weird kinds of geometry, you know, surfaces that live in eight dimensions, but the universe might not be eight dimensional. So you can spend your whole life thinking about the mathematics of eight dimensional objects, but that's not actually relevant to our universe if our universe is just three dimensional. But, you know, we don't know. Uh, people spend, for example, decades developing ideas called group theory about how things relate to each other. Then later it turns out to be totally relevant to particle physics. So you never know what math is going to be relevant but it's definitely possible that there's kinds of math which are not relevant to the universe. Right, but I guess it's kind of a tricky philosophical question because like, if you can come up with math that makes sense, doesn't that technically mean that it exists in the universe? Even if you can't find like a, you know, a law of particles that follows that math, the math is still there and it's, it makes sense in this universe. It, doesn't that mean that it's part of the universe? Yeah, it's one of the deepest questions in the philosophy of math. Like, are those numbers real? Are they part of the universe? And then you get into weird things like, well, what does it mean to be real? Because like those numbers, the number two, where is the number two? Right? Everything else that's real has like a location. 
It has behavior. It can like participate in experiments. You can talk about whether protons are real and you can do tests on them. You can't do that for the number two. There's no way the number two can like participate in experiments, can cause effects. So if it's real, it's real in a different way than other things that are real. But I think maybe Matthew's question is not so much about these big philosophical questions. I think maybe he's coming at it from a more intuitive point of view, which is like, you know, does the universe have a mathematical description? Can you describe the universe with math? And if you can, uh, what kind of math is it? Is it trigonometry, algebra, or is it just all addition all the way down? <laughs> um, I would say there's two parts to that answer. One is what kind of math do we use to describe the universe? And the other is whether we could boil that down to one sort of like basic kind of math. So on the first one, we tend to use calculus a lot. Like calculus is often described as the language of physics. It's really a very, very powerful tool to describe what we see about the universe. That's because calculus is like the mathematics of change. If you have something flying through the air with a certain velocity, that's fine. But now if you want to change that velocity and you want to understand where it's going to go, you have to accumulate all those changes and figure out where it's going to land. That requires calculus. So the mathematics of change is really the mathematics of motion in our universe. So calculus is really fundamental. Right, because we have, you're saying because we have time in the universe and time kind of implies change, then we need calculus. But it's also, I think, a little maybe more fundamental, I wonder, because it, it calculus is also about how the rates of change depend on each other, right? Like we seem to have found laws, for example, like F equals MA that says that, you know, the rate of change depends on this force or that force or this situation. And so it seems like the universe uh, has laws that govern over the rate of changes of things. And that's why calculus is useful. Yeah, calculus is useful because it gives us these tools and we can express the laws of the universe that we discover in terms of those. So you're right, almost all of the laws of physics, like F equals MA, that's an expression in calculus because A is a derivative. Acceleration is the rate of change of velocity. That's a differential. That's part of calculus. Force is really change in momentum with respect to time, right? And so that's a differential. So you're absolutely right that most of the laws of physics can be expressed in terms of objects that were invented for calculus. But calculus also handles things that are not rate of change with time. You know, calculus lets you integrate over space also. If you have an object that has like a varying density and you want to know its total mass, you can integrate over the object over space in order to get the total mass if the density is varying. So calculus is the math of change of time or of space. Yeah. And then what happens when you go down to the quantum level? First of all, does calculus still apply or does it get more into like quantum uh, waves and, and functions and fields? Is calculus still useful there and maybe even appropriate because the world is quantized? It's absolutely still useful there. Like the Schrodinger equation, that's a differential equation. Absolutely. It's a wave equation, which tells you how the wave changes in space and how that relates to how it changes in time. So calculus, super fundamental. And the basic theory of the standard model, which we call quantum field theory, is full of calculus because calculus involves integrals and integrals allow you to add up over many, many different things. You can add up slices in time or slices in space. But quantum mechanically, it also lets you add up different probabilities. So for example, one important formulation of quantum mechanics by Feynman says, if you want to understand how a particle moves from A to B, you have to integrate over all possible paths of the particle. So calculus lets you consider multiple different possibilities simultaneously. So it's crucial to quantum field theory. 
Right. So calculus is pretty useful. So kids pay attention to that class when you <laughs> when you get to calculus. But I guess maybe a question here is, is calculus the theory to use for the universe? Like it's useful and you definitely seem to be able to use it to describe a lot of the universe and even predict a lot of what happens in the universe. But maybe we're just kind of lucky, like maybe calculus just sort of works most of the time. And so we think it's the way to go. But maybe there's a different math here that would describe the universe in more detail, the more we learn about it. Is that possible? It certainly is possible. And we're constantly improving on and developing new techniques in calculus. It's not like calculus is a finished thing. It's not like Newton and Leibniz invented a few hundred years ago and now it's done. People are still working on it like today, figuring out ways to do complicated integrals and whole new techniques that then makes previously unsolvable problems now solvable. So it's definitely a developing field and it's improving. And so that means that in the future, we will have more powerful math that describes the universe even better because there's lots of things that we still like don't know how to do problems we can't solve, probably because we just don't have the mathematical tools for them yet. You're saying uh, calculus is pretty good and we're going to stick with it. <laughs> But maybe, as you were saying, the deeper question is whether or not this is uh, just in general using math to describe the universe, if that is something fundamental about the universe or is just our way of understanding it. This is a question that philosophers of math debate and have been debating for thousands of years and probably will keep debating for thousands more years. I'm not sure it's something they can really make progress on. They're really at the heart of it. We're asking whether math describes the universe or whether it controls the universe. Like is the universe itself mathematical? Is math part of the universe itself or is it just our description of it is the way that we organize our thoughts? Is it like a convenient way to think or is it really the source code of the universe itself? And telling the difference between those things is pretty tricky. You mean um, like the difference is kind of like whether the universe actually cares about math, right? Because maybe like in one scenario, the universe just does its thing and the universe doesn't even care about math or know what math is. The other scenario is that the universe is kind of beholden to math or the, somehow the universe is, is math at its core. That's the difference, right? Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. Sometimes the way I think about it is in terms of like a computer program. Say somebody writes a computer program and then you use it, Microsoft Word, for example. And you could try to like figure out how Word works and you could reverse engineer it using some other programming language. Maybe it was written in Python and you figured out how to write it in C. Right now you have a description of this computer program in your own language. That doesn't necessarily mean that that's the program that's actually running inside of Word. You might just have a description of it. Or it might be that you've discovered the actual source code for Word itself. In the same way, the math that we are building might be the actual code that the universe is following, or it could just be a good description of it. And there might be other possible descriptions that are equally valid. We just don't know. Mm. All right. Well, which is it then, I guess? I wish we knew. One of my favorite philosophical attempts to answer this question came from Hartree Field. He said, let's see if it's possible to do science and physics specifically without any math, without any numbers at all. Like, can you devise laws of physics that don't have numbers in them? Wait, numbers or even like variables? and symbols or none of that none of that at all he writes in his book like i denied that numbers exist <laughs> he wrote this whole book called science without numbers where he was admitting that math is useful but he was trying to prove that it's not necessary by building up a new version of these theories that didn't use any numbers why what, what would that even look like if you wrote it down that you have to write down something <laughs> 
Well, on page 47 of his book Without Numbers, for example, he talks about how to do this. It's pretty philosophically intricate. He like imbues points of space with certain kind of properties so that you don't ever have to do any calculations. Like most specifically, he thinks about gravity and how gravity works. And when we do gravitational calculations, we create all sort of abstract intermediate ideas like the gravitational field. We say that the earth is pulled on the sun because of the gravitational field of the sun. And he's like, you need numbers to describe that field. But what if that field wasn't there? You don't ever observe the field directly. You just observe the sun pulling on the earth. What if that's just something that space does and there is no field at all? It's an example of how he's try, like, trying to rid the calculation of intermediate steps that need numbers to describe them. Mm, but ultimately, wouldn't you have to write it down and wouldn't you eventually uh, have to you know, have an equation or something? No, in his formulation of Newton's gravity, there are no equations, there are no numbers, there is no mathematics. It's hard to imagine because we think that math is the answer, right? Like you do a calculation, you get a result. It says, oh, the force on the earth is this. For us, math is the language itself. But he developed a way to perform these calculations and think about it that doesn't have math as the internal steps or either as the answer. And is this credible? Does this seem suspect? Or is this like a, an actual valid possibility for the universe? I think that most philosophers see it as like a heroic effort to make the point that maybe math isn't necessary. But there's a lot of steps he took along the way, which people quibble with. And people don't think that this effort could be applied to like everything in physics. And so it's like, hey, cool point, man. But it doesn't really work. It doesn't really convince anybody that you don't need math to do science. I see people are like, hey, there are a number of errors in your theory. And then he's like, wait, but there are no numbers. Ha ha. <laughs> exactly. I think that most people, most mathematicians and most physicists think that math is an inherent part of the universe. Right. But I, then I guess the larger question I was kind of alluding to is whether the universe cares if there's math or not. Or like, which came first, math or physics? <laughs> I don't know what it means for the universe to care about something. But I think there is another interesting aspect to Matthew's question, which is like, which math is essential? Trigonometry, algebra, calculus. And that's interesting because you're like slicing up math now into different categories, which are a little bit arbitrary, right? Like calculus uses trigonometry and algebra and all of these things. But there actually is a really interesting effort inside of math to try to like boil all of math down into the shortest list of rules you would need to build up all the rest of math, like to find the core axioms at the heart of it all. Oh, yeah. Where is that coming from, from the math fields or from the physics fields? That comes from mathematics from like 150 years ago. People have been doing math for thousands of years. About 150 years ago, people were like, hold on a second. What are the basic rules of math anyway? And so there was a guy named Piano who showed that almost all of arithmetic can be boiled down to just a basic few rules. And then people who came after him showed that most of math could be boiled down to arithmetic. And then later, people showed that most arithmetic can be boiled down to something called set theory, which is math about like groups, what's in a group, what's out of a group, how do you combine groups, how do you overlap groups. So the current like idea about the very foundation of math is that in the end, it's all about sets. It's all about like what's in a group, what's out of group. From that, you can build arithmetic and from that you can build calculus. So fundamentally, we think that the description of the universe is mathematical and it's all set theory all the way down. That's kind of what I was saying, right? It's just, there's just addition, basically. It's just You're addition. In the group or not in the group. <laughs> exactly. It's addition and it's popularity. It's all clicks. <laughs> the universe is very elitist. Or it's all about clickbait. 
All right. Well, I think that answers Matthew's question. What is the math of the universe? Uh, well, the answer is so far, calculus has been really useful in describing the universe, but um, physicists are not sure if maybe even calculus is the fundamental way to describe the universe or even the most fundamental um, way to describe math itself. That's right, but that doesn't mean we don't like thinking about these questions and wondering about what's going on at the heart of the universe and why it's even possible to describe it mathematically or to make sense of it with our little primate brains. So you're going to keep going until it all adds up or until you ask, what the heck? I can't even. Until we're part of the in-group that actually knows some answers. Until we're all guinea pigs. <laughs> we're all test subjects in this universe. Living on the surface of some crazy exomoon. Or black hole. All right, well, thank you to everyone who sent in their questions. We love answering questions. We hope you enjoyed that. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. Thanks for listening. And remember that Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon Podcast has revolutionized over 20 million bedtimes with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cozy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 